D.C. is a city that is full of ambition, and I probably don't have to convince you of that. It's the kind of city that draws the best and the brightest, the most highly educated people from all around the world come through D.C. because this is a place where uh, careers can be built, where connections can be made, where credentials can be earned that will set you up for life. And so it draws people from all around the world who are full of ambition. And yet we all know people, we can probably all think of somebody who has been destroyed by their own ambition. Somebody who has been uh, so devoted to their work, they've become such a, a workaholic, they've been so career obsessed that their life has fallen apart. And there are these kind of warning uh, stories uh, and, 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 and uh, evidences of the dangers of ambition all around us. And especially if you're a Christian, it's very common to hear ambition talked about in a wholly negative light. Um, as though any form of ambition is dangerous and wrong. And I think that in the Christian community, there can be a lot of confusion, actually, about ambition. Should we be ambitious? Should we set lofty goals? Should we aspire to climb the ladder, to pursue success in wherever God has called us to, to work. I think it's been misunderstood to some extent. It's interesting, if you look at the creation story and human origins, God didn't just create human beings to sit around and eat fruit and sing. Uh, God created human beings to work. He intentionally made a world that was unfinished, put human beings in it, and told them to finish what he had started to take the raw material of creation and to make something out of it, to create new things, to cultivate and to build. And that drive to create, you know, that, that innate drive to produce, to do something meaningful, to have an impact on the world, that's called ambition. And I would say that's a part of what it means to be a human being, according to the Bible, is to have ambition. So whether your ambition is to start a company and become a CEO or take on some global problem, or whether your ambition is simply to do maybe one of the most important things of all, which is to build a stable, healthy, godly family in the middle of the city, whatever your ambition is, that drive is rooted in something that God looked at and said, that is good. I want you to be like that. And yet, as we all know, the ambition drive, just like any drive in the human life, can become disordered. It can become distorted, and it can end up doing a lot more harm than good. And so we're going to look at ambition this morning, and we're going to talk about the difference between healthy, godly ambition, which is essential to being a human being, and what we might think of as disordered ambition that can damage us, those close to us, and really society as a whole. 
And we're going to do this by looking at Esther chapters 5 and 6, and we're going to compare these two individuals. We're going to look at Esther on the one hand, and then we're going to look at Haman on the other. So what I want to do is to summarize the passage, summarize the events that we just heard read by Stephanie a moment ago, and then we will look at these two figures and what they teach us about these two kinds of ambition. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the way that you have made us in your image, and you've made us to be creators and producers as you are the creator. And we pray that you would give us a vision of what that looks like, Lord, uh, what it can look like in our own lives for our church, for our community, for the city, for the world, Lord. We pray this for your glory and your son's name. Amen. So let me summarize the story uh, to, bring us up to, um, to bring us up to the present in terms of our study of Esther. Um, Esther and Haman both figure prominently in the story, and they're both people who are intelligent and skillful, and they're both people of, uh, I would say, fairly high ambition. And at this point in the story, they both attained positions of power and influence in the Persian government, and they're both highly ambitious in their own way. So, so first to look at Esther, Esther, if you remember, was a young Jewish girl living with Mordecai, who's her adoptive father, and they're living in the Persian capital of Susa. And Esther just happens to be chosen to become the next queen of Persia alongside King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes. And so she just happens to be chosen queen and attain this position of extraordinary power and influence. And then she learns that one of the other Persian officials, Haman, who we'll get to, has convinced the king to issue a decree that on a particular day, all the Jewish people living in the Persian Empire will be eradicated. He has legally decreed genocide. And Esther is the only one who has any chance of stopping the genocide. And so she decides to intervene. And for her, intervening means she has to out herself as a Jew, because up to this point, she's been concealing that. She has to out herself as a Jew, and she has to risk her life. Because anyone who approaches the king without being officially summoned, the penalty for that is death, unless the king says otherwise. And so she decides to risk her life for her people. And so in chapter 5, which we come to this morning, after fasting and praying for three days and calling all of the Jews to fast and pray with her, she approaches the king, and to her great relief, the king does not have her killed. Then the king asks her why she has come to him. And he says, what is your request? I will give you anything you ask up to half my kingdom. Now, that's not literal. That's an idiom that was often used to sort of show a generous spirit. I'll give you anything you ask. What would you like? And so instead of simply asking the king directly to change his mind about the Jewish genocide, she does something kind of curious. She invites the king and Haman to a banquet. Now, that's kind of odd. And then at that banquet, the king says, okay, thanks for the food, thanks for the drink. Um, he's had a few glasses of wine by this point. He says, okay, now what's your request? Anything you want, uh, up, up to half my kingdom. Esther says, well, if I've found favor in your eyes, would, would you and Haman please join me again tomorrow for another feast that I'm going to prepare in your honor? 
And the king says, okay. And she says, well, if you come, then I promise I'll, I'll make my request known to you then. And here we begin to see just how gifted Esther is when it comes to politics and leadership. Because Esther knows this. Esther knows that the secret to a good meeting is the meeting before the meeting. Right? It takes some people a long time to figure that out. If you're going to have an opportunity to meet with the senior executives of your organization and to pitch your ideas and to try to persuade them to come over to your point of view, if at all possible, figure out who the influencers and the decision makers in that room will be and then do everything you can to meet with them before the meeting. Because it gives you an opportunity to gain buy-in, it gives you an opportunity to build trust, it gives you an opportunity to identify any blind spots or potential obstacles that you need to be aware of. So that when you go and have the actual meeting and make your pitch, you've done everything you can to ensure that you're gonna get the answer that you wanna get. So the most important thing you can do before the meeting is to have a meeting. And this is what she does. She's going to wine and dine these men for two full days, throw feasts in their honor, and then make her pitch. And this is simply good strategy. Esther is wicked smart. She knows what she's doing. She's brilliant. Now I want to look at Haman. Haman is also highly ambitious. Haman is also politically skillful. Haman is risen to the second highest rank in the government under the king himself. He has an enormous amount of power. And Haman is, of course, invited to Esther's feast. And when he leaves, it says in verse 9 that he's feeling joyful and glad of heart. That's a biblical euphemism for he's had a lot of wine. And uh, he's feeling fine until he sees Mordecai. Because Haman expected by law that as he, because he was so important that when he walked around, when people saw him, they should bow and show deference before him. Because uh, this is, he's Haman. He's a very important man. Everybody else does that except Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to defer. He refuses to bow. And this infuriates Haman. And so Haman goes home and he calls all of his friends and his family together. And then he brags about his wealth and about his career success and about all of his promotions and about his honors. And he says, even Queen Esther invited me and only me to dine with the king. I've been honored greatly. And yet he says this in verse 13, all of this is worth nothing to me. It's worth nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate and refusing to honor me. And so his wife and friends say, well, here's what you should do. Your friends don't always give the best advice. <laughs> Build a gallows. Build a gallows. Now, we think of a gallows like where you would hang somebody. But what this actually means is a gigantic spike. So build a 75-foot tall spike with a point on the end. And then take Mordecai and impale him on that spike. And then you'll feel better. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to impale somebody, right? And, uh, and Mordecai says, that's a great idea. And, he, uh, and it makes him feel better just thinking about it. And so he, he sends word for them to start construction of this gigantic 75-foot-tall spike. And then he makes his way to the king's chambers to get the king's permission to publicly humiliate and execute Mordecai. So this brings us to chapter 6. And what I believe is the greatest 
moment of comic irony in all of Scripture. This is utterly brilliant. This shows you that Scripture isn't just about reporting the events. This is art. I mean, this is literary art. At the very moment that, that, that Haman is deciding he wants to execute Mordecai, we, we, we cut to the king's bedchamber, right? And, and the king is having trouble sleeping. And so he just happens to have the idea to have his servants bring uh, the, the, the book of memorable deeds to read him essentially a bedtime story. Um, but, but the bedtime story is the official record of all of the transactions that have happened over the years in the king's court. And so one of his servants begins to read this record of deeds. And as that is happening, the servant just happens to remind the king about a time years ago when Mordecai had discovered an assassination plot and then had told Esther and they had saved the king's life. So Mordecai saved the king's life years earlier. And the king bolts up in bed and says, did we ever reward him? Did we ever do anything for him? Because it would be very embarrassing for somebody to save your life as a king and for you not to reward that person. That doesn't bode well. That doesn't communicate good leadership. And so he says, he says did we ever do anything for Mordecai? And the servant says, well, no, I don't believe we did. And so the king says, okay, well, we, we have to do something right now. Who's still awake? Who's here? Who's still in the court? Is there anybody that we can send to rectify this? And Haman walks in. Right? You see what's about to happen? So Haman comes in, and Haman is already dreaming about Mordecai hanging from this spike. And, and Haman comes in to get the king's permission. But right before Mordecai, but right before Haman can even get the words out, the king says, Haman, I have a question for you. Haman says, what is it, your majesty? And he says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, who could he possibly be talking about other than me? Right? He has to be talking about me. So, 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 the, so the king says, who should, how should we honor such a person? And Haman says, well, hypothetically, your robes are very nice. In fact, not just any old robes. How about the robes that you've worn? Why don't we let this person wear your robes? And he says, you know what? Actually, I've got a better idea. You have the best horse in the kingdom. How about we let this person ride on your personal horse and put a crown on the horse's head? And then he says, no, 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 I've got it. Find your noblest official and have your noblest official take your royal robes and put them on this hypothetical person and then put this hypothetical person on your personal horse and then have this official lead this person through the entire kingdom, through all the streets, proclaiming this is what happens to the man whom the king delights to honor so that everybody will know how much you honor this hypothetical person. And then the moment comes. The king says, perfect. I love it. Hurry. Go get my robes, go get my horse, and go and do all of this to Mordecai the Jew. And then, as if to rub it in, the king says, leave nothing out that you've mentioned. <laughs> do it all. <laughs> Can you imagine Haman's face? Can you imagine how crushed he must have been? There's, I think, no greater example in all of history of the truth of the, of the verse that says, pride going before the fall. Right? Haman has just fallen into his own trap. 
So we have two people here who are both highly ambitious. Esther is this example of humble, godly ambition. And Haman shows us what ambition looks like when it starts to become disordered and prideful. And I want to draw out three ways that these kinds of ambition are distinct from one another. They're they're different in terms of their source. They're different in terms of the motivations, and they're different in terms of their priorities. So let's look at each of these in brief. First question to ask yourself as you're thinking about your own ambitions in life is what is the source of those ambitions? What are they rooted in? And to be more specific, are, are your ambitions rooted in God and who God is, or are they rooted in your own sense of strength and competence? The real hero of this book is not Esther, even though it bears her name. The real hero of this book is God, because even though this book doesn't mention God, God is the one who is orchestrating all of these seeming coincidences. The entire book hinges on things that just happen to happen, and all of that is the hand of God, and Esther knows this. Esther knows the only reason she's in the position that she's in or has the resources that she has at her disposal is because God's providence put her there. And and this is why even though Esther is a brilliant leader, even though she's a brilliant tactician, before she does anything, she calls all of her people and she herself to three days of fasting and prayer. Because she recognizes that unless God does something, unless God acts, none of her efforts will amount to anything. It has to be God. And then you contrast that with the way Haman thinks. Right in verse 11, it says, And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. It's all about him. His focus is on what he is owed, what he deserves, what he has earned. It's a very different form of ambition. And so godly ambition is a kind of ambition that recognizes that all of our gifts All of our talents, all of our education, all of our resources come from God. The fact that you were born into the family that you were born into with the resources that you have, entirely a result of God's providence. And all of this is meant to be used for God's glory as a result. And and what that means, if you know that, what that means is, and this may feel a bit counterintuitive, you can be humble and highly ambitious at the same time. Now, a lot of people think that you're either humble or you're ambitious, that they're opposites. Not true. You can be highly humble, very humble, and you can also be very ambitious in the goals that you set for yourself. Right? Some people live life barely trying at all. You know, they they never take risks. They never put themselves out there. You know, they never ask people out on dates. They never go for the job that's kind of a stretch. They never go for the job that they're probably not going to get. They never really put themselves on the line. And and people can do that and act like that's a form of humility. But it's not humility. That's not humility. It's a fear of failure. Right? It's it's, it's actually your pride saying, man, if I do that and I fail, I'm going to look really bad. That's not humility. The more your confidence actually rests in God, the more wildly ambitious you will become. 
Because you realize that you're dealing with the God who is able to do far more than we can ask or even imagine. So you should expect the impossible if you believe that it's God and not you. Right? If, by contrast, you think it all hinges on you, you're probably going to be more risk-averse. Right? So if you want to know whether your ambition is godly or whether it has become dis- disordered in some way, um, ask yourself these questions. How often do you pray before you act? Right? How often do you pray before you act? You know, there's, there's a reason that we, we in our church spent a year simply praying before we began to really meaningfully talk about the possibility of buying a building. Because we know that for a church like ours to, to buy a permanent home in a place like D.C. is going to require an act of God. It's very possible, but it's going to have to be God that does it. All right, so how often do you pray before you act? What, think about this. What risk are you not taking What goal are you not setting in your life because you think it all hinges on you? Or to put it another way, what risk would you take, what goal would you pursue if you truly believed God was in it with you and that God might actually do the impossible? So what's the source of your ambition? That's the first thing we need to be thinking about. Uh, The second difference between these two forms of ambition concerns our motivation. What motivates your ambition? What motivates the goals that you set and and, and what drives you? What we see here is that godly ambition is motivated by love. It's motivated by a love for God. It's motivated by a love for other people. Esther's leadership is entirely motivated by her desire to save her people. That's why she's doing what she's doing. And she recognizes something very important that I think we all, need to, to, we all need to see. That the purpose of power, the purpose of all power, and, and we, everybody in this room has power in one way or another. The purpose of power is to serve and bless those under your care. Right? Whether you're the CEO of a major global organization or simply a parent with kids whether you're leading a a small group or a a team at work or in whatever way you have power, the purpose of that power is to serve and to bless those under your care. When Mordecai says in the previous chapter, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, this is what he's talking about. He's saying this, if God has put you in a position of power and influence, it is because he wants to bless and love And provide for the people that he has put you over. That's why you're there. That's why God puts people in such positions. But our ambition can become disordered when it ceases to be motivated by love and it begins to be motivated by need. So not love, but need. And by the way, it's not a clear cut one or the other. You can be somewhat motivated by love but you can at the same time be somewhat motivated by need. We see this in Haman. He's motivated entirely by need. I mean, Haman is the second most powerful person in the kingdom. He has wealth. He has power. He has a huge family. He has every symbol of status and success that you could have in the ancient world. And yet he says all of this is worthless because one man refuses to bow to him. Now that is disproportionate. Can we agree on that? That's disproportionate, which makes you think 
there's something else going on there. There's something else at work in Haman's heart. What does the bowing symbolize to him? What's really going on? You know, a lot of people want power because they believe that it will somehow prove that they are worth something. If I can have this credential or this position, it will mean I am valuable. It will mean that I have worth. It will mean that my existence has meaning. And the, the paradox is that the, the, the more your ambition is motivated by need, the more the affirmation that you do receive will never be enough. Right? If you're pursuing these things, if your ambition is about getting recognition, getting attention, getting affirmation, getting a sense of worth, it's never going to be enough. Right? You're going to be the kind of person that when other people say affirming things to you, when other people compliment you or say encouraging things, on the one hand, you're going to be hungry for it, but on the other hand, you're going to be discrediting it the entire time they're saying it. And it's immediately going to be like a little drop into a black abyss in your heart. Right? It's never going to fill it up. And you're always going to be locked in on what you don't have or what other people have that you don't have. So again, if you want to know whether your ambition has become disordered, think about these questions and ask these to yourself. When other people in your life, especially in your field, people who do the same kind of thing you do, when those people are successful, can you celebrate their success? Or do you feel diminished by it? Does it diminish you? If you fail at something that you put yourself into, Does that crush you? Or can you get up and keep going? Right? A great view of failure is to say, I want to, you know, who was it that said, I think it was Edison who said, "Um, I want to fail as often as possible because it gets me that much closer to success. You know, he says, I didn't fail a hundred times. You know, when he was trying to make the light bulb, he said something like, I didn't fail a hundred times. I figured out a hundred ways not to make a light bulb. Which is a great way of thinking about it, right? But failure crushes some people. It obliterates some people. You feel worthless. Last question. Are you content simply to strive for excellence? To strive for your sort of personal best? Or do you believe that unless you are the best, you're worthless? Is it all or none? I'm either the top or I'm nothing. Those questions will help you figure out, what am I motivated by? Am I motivated by love? A desire to please the Lord, or am I motivated by need? Is there a black abyss that I'm trying to fill up? The third thing, the third difference, and the final difference that we see here between these two forms of ambition is a difference of priority. How do you prioritize your ambitions? Godly ambition prioritizes what is best for others, even when it costs us. And again, you see this in Esther. I mean, Esther is willing to risk her reputation. She's willing to risk even her life in order to save the Jews. And it's very clear that their needs come first. Right? Whatever it costs me, as long as, as long as I can take care of them. But Haman's priorities are the exact opposite. Haman is prioritizing what is best for Haman, even when it costs others. And, you know, it's so telling that he's willing to... He's willing to humiliate and execute another man by impaling him on a spike just so that he can feel superior. 
In fact, arguably, the entire reason that the genocide has been decreed is because of Haman's wrath. His anti-Semitism seems to be driven by a sense of his own innate superiority and his desire to put the Jews in their place. So whom do you prioritize? Yourself or other people? Now these are two, Esther and Haman are two extreme examples. I don't think, I don't think you, any of you are plotting murder to, to feel superior over anybody. I hope not. But, but this can play out in much more subtle ways in our lives, you know. Um, this may simply mean prioritizing, prioritizing the needs of other people in your workplace over yourself, right? Which may mean simply when, when somebody's being criticized, because, you know, if you have a highly cutthroat competitive environment and somebody is, starts to be successful or somebody gets promoted, it's easy for the other people that got passed over for promotion to start to just rip that person to shreds. You may not impale them publicly in reality, but you will impale their reputation. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm deeply ashamed to admit this happens among pastors from time to time. You know, you have a bunch of pastors, and then you have one pastor who, who pastors the really big church with all of the money and all of the people and all of the things, right? And, and it's very common to hear other pastors kind of suddenly rip that guy to shreds. You know, this is why the ministry is not legitimate. This is why they sold out. You know, this kind of anti, you know, if a church gets too large, it starts to become, you know, people start to kind of turn on it. Like there's something inherently wrong with it. I think that's driven by the same thing that we're seeing in Haman. It's just a lot more subtle. But this can also shape how we think about running an organization as a whole. Some of you are leading organizations. Some of you one day will be leading organizations. Do you only focus on profits and push your employees to the point of burnout and exhaustion? Some of you have jobs like that. Or are you prioritizing the quality of life of the people who work for you? Right? When you define success for your organization, does your vision include blessing and making sure the people who work for you have a high quality of life? Right? Do, do you think about the impact of your organization on the environment? Do you think about the way you do deals with other people? The way, if you're, if you're dealing with producers, the, the way you're treating them? Are you paying fair prices for things? You know, in other words, do you build your organization with a priority toward the common good, even, even if it cuts into your margins. That's what we're talking about here. This is also, by the way, reflected in our own personal relationships. You know, if you're desiring to have a godly ambition that prioritizes others over yourself, that may mean that when you're doing group work, which some of you love and some of you hate, you know, like if you're in school and they say, okay, this is gonna be a group project, some people are like, oh, you know. This may mean you're the person staying up late the night before it's due to get the project done. But then being willing to share the credit. Maybe that's what it means, right? Maybe this means that in your marriage, when you're fighting and you're at odds, you're the first person to lay down arms and admit your sin. Because your desire is the common good of the marriage, not just to prove that you're right. If you have kids, this may mean that you're the one who gets up and cleans the puke up at 3 a.m so that your spouse can sleep, because you're prioritizing the common good of your home, right? This, this may mean making those sacrifices, and in all of these scenarios, it would be very easy, it would even be justifiable to prioritize your own needs, 
even at the expense of others. And sometimes we do. But, but here's the thing we need to, to realize. The more we give into that temptation, the more you prioritize yourself over time, even when it's very justifiable, the more likely you will be to do that in the future. And the more disordered your ambition will become. And, and the last thing that we need to see is in chapter 6. And this is very, very, very important. Haman, in all of his pride, in all of his disordered ambition, is coming face-to-face with Mordecai's God. This dramatic reversal, right, where Haman has to honor Mordecai instead of killing him. This is all about the hand of God at work. And Haman's squad, you know, his advisors, his friends, his wife, they all kind of look at him and say, you didn't, you didn't tell us he was a Jew. Oh, if, if this man that you're opposing and already beginning to, to fall before, if he's a Jew, you've got no chance. Because you haven't just picked a fight with Mordecai, you've picked a fight with Mordecai's God. And that's a whole different story. Right? Because here's, here's what we recognize about that God. Right? As Jesus Christ himself says, our God is the kind of God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so the path of disordered ambition may win you some small success in this life, but ultimately it is a dead-end road because God opposes the proud. That road does not end well. And this is why the gospel is such good news and such necessary news for us to hear this morning. Because the same Jesus who said that God opposes the proud knows that in our hearts we are proud. Knows that as much as we would love to say that we are like Esther, truth be told, we're probably a lot more like Haman. Maybe we're just more subtle about it. And this is why Jesus came not simply to tell us to be more like Esther, but Jesus came to do what Esther never could have done. I mean, the greatest example of godly ambition in history is the cross. It's the greatest example. The reason Jesus went there, the source of his entire mission, was God. He said, I came not to do my will, but the one who sent me. I do my Father's will. Even when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and desired any other path, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus' ambition was motivated by love. Right? His entire purpose was to bless and serve the people of this world. And on the cross, Jesus' priorities are clear. He sacrificed his life on the cross to save humanity. And so I just want you to imagine as we close, imagine D.C. not as a place of disordered ambition, but imagine what D.C. would be like if it were filled with people of godly ambition, right? Filled with people who know that their gifts have come from God and who know that those gifts are to glorify God. Imagine D.C. filled with people who are motivated entirely by love, who understand that if they're in positions of power and influence, it's because God has called them to serve and to bless those under their care. And imagine D.C. full of people who prioritize the common good over their own good. Imagine how that would transform the city. Imagine how it would transform the world. So whatever your ambitions may be,
It is only by looking at the cross that we are reminded what true godly ambition looks like. And it's only by looking at the cross that our own disordered ambitions began to be put right by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that this is a room full of people to whom much has been given. And Lord, we pray that we would be good stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. And Lord, we, we thank you for the example of Esther, but, but more than that, we thank you for the, for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we're not just talking about a worldview or an outlook, but we're talking about a way of being human. And we're praying to a God who has the ability through your spirit to change our hearts. And so we pray that that would happen, Lord, that we would become people of godly, humble ambition, but that we would dream wild dreams about what might be possible here because of you. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.